0: Welcome to the Early Advantage. A few weeks ago, it was Early Advantage. Biopsy edition. Today it's excision Frankenstein scar edition. Uh, Perhaps because I didn't get the biopsy soon enough. Uh, Lesson learned if you got a bump, something looks weird on your forehead, get it checked out. I'm glad I did. But enough about me. Today we're going to talk about carbon markets with one of the world's leading experts in carbon markets. And I will put what little I know on the table. And then my friend or my my new associate here, Aaron Bloomgarten, who is a partner at Climate Finance Partners, can opine. So, Aaron, let me frame the issue of carbon markets, carbon market investing. I know some people have made big money in this. I know it's still kind of a wild west. Um, it seems to me that you know we all know, regardless of you know, where you live or where you are in the political spectrum, that businesses do stuff that creates costs, whether it's literally a cost, or it's you know, an inconvenience or it's a burden on someone, some thing, some ecosystem. and those costs are not always priced in. A very simple example would be you know company A, Pollutes and dumps a lot of sludge in the river, and the people downriver get sick, uh, and and maybe the, the crops suffer in the next year. In that case, company A is clearly the bad guy and needs to pay reparations. Everybody gets that, but let's make it a little more probabilistic. You know, company A is polluting, and the the pollution wafts all over the place, and there you know it goes to different areas, and maybe there's a probability that in, in the coming years and decades, that pollution is going to cause problems for the world. Um, that's a lot harder to be specific about pinpointing the bad guy and pinpointing the cost exactly. Although we're getting better with science and and the, the human mind and the human species, I guess struggles with things that are probabilistic that are down the road. So climate, uh, or sorry, carbon markets, I should say, appear to be our our going market solution aside from policy for trying to solve uh, this problem of what economists call externalities. And they're both a way to help the climate and to help investors who do it right. Uh, am I correct so far? And can you take that baton to the next level?
1: Yes. Uh, thanks, James. And, and thanks for the invite. i um- really happy to be here and also happy you got that uh, biopsy <laughs> biopsy done oh, thank you uh, thank you <laughs> uh, and i'm so glad you you started there because uh, most people miss kind of the fundamental underpinning of these markets which is fixing uh an extra a negative externality in this case which is pollution and an externality is a is an economic principle uh that's been around with for a long time which basically says that You know, in a transaction with with two parties, oftentimes there are either benefits or costs that are outside that transaction. You know, they they can be good or bad. The good one. You know, sometimes I like to start with the good one, which is a beekeeper uh, that's producing honey next to a a farmer who needs his crops uh, um, pollinated. So the beekeeper is providing this great service to, to the farmer uh but not getting paid for that struggling trying to sell honey and meanwhile the the bet a lot of these benefits are going to the farmer so that's an externality we all love the free market uh i love the free market but sometimes the market has failures and they those those oftentimes are expressed through these externalities so how do you fix that well you can internalize that externality so in the case of our beekeeper right the farm the beekeeper could say hey I'm about, you know, hey, I'm going to about to go out of business because I can't sell enough honey. If I go out of business, your crops are going to fail. Why don't you pay me a little bit of money um, uh, for the service that I'm I'm providing? Uh, and so that's a way to fix externality. And so they can be negative as well. And that's what we're concerned about when it comes to climate change, where you are basically uh, the uh, there are costs associated with polluting uh, greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere that aren't necessarily captured in the transaction, whether it's buying energy or taking a flight, um, the the uh, producer is benefiting from, let's call it, freely uh, emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And so the easiest way from an economist's perspective to fix that is to internalize externality. Simple Said simply, we have to price, in this case, carbon emissions. And so that's what a carbon market is trying to do. Um, and there are two f- types of carbon markets. And maybe we can get into more detail, but there are voluntary markets, which is what most people are hearing about <laughs> in the headlines, because these are uh, well-known uh, household name uh, companies that are typically using carbon credits as part of their uh, sustainability and climate plans um, well, like an airline, for example an airline, or it could be Google or Amazon or Microsoft or any other company. Uh, These are typically not huge emitters in the context of, uh, uh, of, uh, you know, when you look at them against uh, energy producers, electricity generators, large industrials, yet they're taking voluntary action within their own operations. Um, And as part of that, they're reducing their own emissions as much as they can or should be reducing their own emissions emissions as much as they can. And then for the residual emissions, they're buying voluntary carbon credits. And so there's an active market there uh, growing very fast, uh, but fairly small still. It's about $2 billion market right now. On the other side, you have so-called compliance carbon markets, and these are regulated markets where you have a government uh, that says, okay, we are capping emissions. And those emissions are going to go down over time in line with science, what science tells us we need, uh, the path we need to be on to say stay on a safe uh, course. And then we will, in order to comply with that cap, we're going to issue a new asset class, a, a carbon allowance. And at the end of every year, the regulated companies within that cap need to, to turn, hand in the number of carbon allowances equal to the to their emissions and by so doing we have an absolute cap on emissions and we can be sure that we are uh in line with with, with our targets and then we're going to allow for trading underneath that cap so so-called cap and cap and trade those markets have been around actually for quite some time uh at least 2000 you know 2005 when the european market uh went into went into force and are much bigger uh, uh than than the voluntary markets so those markets are about 800 billion dollar uh, market now, um, and, and also uh, growing uh, uh, pretty significantly.
0: And so, for perspective, two billion dollars is, is basically a small cap company. Eight hundred billion dollars—you're you're getting close to to one of the largest companies on earth. So, 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 quite a difference. I, I think everything you said makes sense in theory. Like, I got the idea. Now, let's shift over to to the application and practice. In other words, how well is this? I mean, I think there are twenty different. 20 or so different carbon r- markets around the world, if I'm not mistaken. How well is this working now? Because there's obviously a lot of criticism out there about carbon markets, too.
1: Yeah. So there's, there's two objectives here. Uh, well, fundamentally, there's one objective of carbon markets, which is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The second, let's say, sub-objective here is to do it in the most efficient and effective, cost-effective way possible. So from that perspective, they are uh, very successful, and which is why we're seeing um, uh, expansion of, of carbon markets. I, I want to just make a point that the concept of using a market to address an environmental challenge is it new? Uh, when I was a kid growing up in the United States, we had—I remember hearing a lot about acid rain, um, which was a big problem. And acid rain in the U.S. was dealt with uh, through a environmental market, a cap and trade program. We don't really hear much about Acerain anymore because it's, it's largely been addressed. And that was done very effectively and from uh, uh, very cost effectively through a cap and trade program back in the 80s. And so using that principle now for greenhouse gas emissions. So there are there are about 18 to 20 percent of greenhouse gas emissions are covered are covered by some form of a carbon price. Oh, the that's biggest, more than I Yeah. The biggest carbon markets now are uh, Europe. Uh, through the what's called the European Emissions Trading System, uh, California, uh, which is uh, uh, regulated by the California Air Resources Board, a famous storied you know, environmental regulator in California uh, with a lot of power and a lot of uh, uh, prestige. The Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which embodies 10 states in the Northeast of the United States, which come together through a model rule. Uh, and then the UK, uh market which is uh just a uh, uh our new sort of the newest market as it uh it was launched at coming out of the uh, out of the uh EU uh out of the EU system. Um so you know the interesting there's a really interesting dynamic in these markets which is um it was understood fairly early that the these markets you you want to Harness the power of the market to find least cost emission reductions. And you want, want, to a large degree, the price to be uh, set by supply and demand. Having said that, it was discovered, it was understood early on that the market only has the desired environmental impact if the price is high enough. You know, if the price goes, let's say... 10, 15, 20, below that level, it's not driving the type of change that we want to see in terms of uh, uh, incentivizing investments in clean and green uh, energy and technology. And so what we've seen in these markets is actually a a form of a price floor or a soft price floor. So in California, we have an auction reserve price. So the government of California, uh, they won't auction these, they won't sell these credits for below that, Auction reserve price, and that goes up five percent plus inflation every year. It's a really interesting dynamic for investors to understand. Um, the EU market, they, they, you know, that market was retrofitted because it it sat around three to five euros for a very long time, and they were the uh, European Commission realized this isn't having the desired impact that we want, and so they retrofitted a uh, what they call a Market Stability Reserve or MSR, and that looks at okay, how many credits are out, how many allowances are out in the market. If it's uh, based on a formula, if it's over a certain threshold, then we'll hold back some supply at the next at the next auction. So it's a really interesting dynamic in terms of yes, free floating market, but we want to make sure the price doesn't you know dip below a a, certain level.
0: Little stability enhancement, in other words. this is very interesting. And so if I'm, you know, if I'm just a regular investor, I say, this sounds cool, you know, how, do I, how do I start doing it? What's your response?
1: Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think every investor should be thinking about climate, climate change and how it affects their uh, portfolios. And I think an investment in carbon markets itself is a very direct way to have exposure into, to climate action. Few ways to do it. There are funds listed on uh, on exchanges, both in the United States and in Europe and and, and London. Uh, there there is the ability to invest directly in futures, although there you know these markets can be fairly complex to um, uh, to access uh, to access directly. Of course, there are ETFs and other products that make it more you know easy for for investor to access. Got it.
0: Yeah. The, the ETF sounds like, you know, by far the easiest way. Uh, and, and I guess what to use an American baseball analogy, what inning are we in? You know, how accurate is the price discovery? I mean, it sounds like we still need some help with these markets. It sounds like there's we're still relatively early in, yeah. in things coming together. And, and, and perhaps once they do, maybe if we have some you know, globally unified carbon market. That, that, that more people I agreeing money needs consensus to work well. This is quite money, but this is securitization, right? So yeah. like h- how far on that path are we?
1: Uh, that's, a, that, that, that's a great question. Uh, look, if we take a baseball analogy, and I know I come from an American that's, uh, <laughs> you know, very familiar. I, I think we're probably in the third, I'm going to say we're in the third, bottom of the third inning. Which is the third of the
0: way through the game if you're not into baseball.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think we're 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 into the game, but we're we still got a long way. We still have a long way left. From my perspective, climate change is the generational macro theme uh, that is intergenerational, let's say, that we're going to be facing for the next. 50 to 100 years, the transition away from from uh, fossil fuels decarbonizing the entire economy it's a massive challenge, and I think, um, and it's only going to uh, 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 going to accelerate. Um, I and, and just to say, you know, I, I just want to make one point about where we are today, sitting here on, you know, in, in November, uh, October, twenty twenty two, when we've got um, uh, sort of impending energy crisis, especially in, in Europe. I think. Uh, you know, there's some there's relief coming. Um, it means that there's going to be more uh, likely more emissions in the short term because coal fire is going to, uh, uh, you, know, you know, keep, you know, stay on um, and there'll be relief you know, provided to, um, you know, to the energy and electricity production and industrial sectors as well. But, that, but the targets, the, the targets to, to uh, the 2030, 2050, and interim targets that, uh, that Europe is committed to, that California is committed to, these other markets have committed to, aren't moving. In other words, so when we get over this crisis, the, um, the, the slope of the line to get us down to the targets, uh, the, the, the climate targets that have been committed, is going to have to be steeper. Which means I think, you know, the next few innings after we get through the, let's say, the fourth inning are going to be really, really interesting.
0: This could be a good time for investors, in other words. Like McKinsey's estimating 28 or, or 29 trillion euros, are gonna trillion with a T, are going to have to be spent to reach net zero. I mean, that's that's a lot of money. Lot um, of money. Yeah. Uh, two quick questions, Erin. Well, I still got you here, uh, which I think you're going to have an opinion on. Is indexing, we're shifting to the equity markets now. Do you think indexing is a net positive for the planet? And I ask it like this. If we return to the initial uh, example that I just kind of brainstormed, you know, company A pollutes, it goes down the river and hurts a town. That's that's clear and cut, right? Um, if you're purely, purely an economic investor, you you like the fact that your company can pollute and not have to bear those costs. But if you're an index fund and maybe you own some companies that are in that town, and those towns, you know, they, they also get affected negatively by, by that pollution, or you own some companies that are downwind of, of a polluting company, you know, uh, coal plant or whatever. Suddenly, you think much more holistically, much more systemically. And a couple of years ago, more than half of the money uh, in the market was passive, you know, which is a big shift from, you know, decades ago. So and we see BlackRock and others getting involved much more vociferously. Is that a net positive or do you think that's kind of a neutral for, for the planet?
1: I think it's. I think we're probably neutral, maybe lean net positive. But I think, you know, the fund, I might push back on the fundamental premise that it's it's good up for investors that that companies are polluting for free. And I think the evidence is how many companies we are seeing voluntarily taking climate uh, commitments. The to, the the pressure on companies is enormous uh, to to move in this. Broad direction of sustainability, and not just do it for PR reasons, which is was, was the motivation. You know, let's say for the last ten years, we're moving into a phase where companies, from a license to operate, from risk management, including future regulation and liability, the ability to attract and retain uh, talent, you know, especially especially within this new uh, new generation, being able to compete effectively. I just think that the pressures on company. Uh, companies to uh, have real and meaningful climate and sustainability goals is enormous. And I think that there are going to be winners and losers in the, trend, the massive transition that we just talked about to decarbonization. And the companies that are laggards, I think, are much more likely to be losers, massive losers in that, in that transition.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, last question. I am is a weird little thing about me. I'm in the American Conifer Society. I'm a big tree buff, a big boreal forest buff. And I, I spent part of my spring planting some trees in the mountains, some some conifers in an area where it had been deforested previously. Was I wasting my time or not? And I asked that because there are critics of tree planting. And before we started recording, you mentioned that you actually run a tree planting or a, a reforestation charity, should, more than tree planting. But, um, you know, tree, a mature forest is, is carbon neutral. Uh, and and people were i mean it is a one-time bump right it is a benefit initially uh but with global warming there's more forest fires i mean there's a lot of criticism now not a lot but there's some criticism of of, of reforestation is being overblown what do you how do you respond to that
1: yeah. this is one of my favorite questions so actually the the charity i work on is actually focused on protecting forests not replanting forests and there there's a really important reason for that um which is to say the priority in my mind, is to protect what we've got left urgently. Um, people don't realize, you know, when you're in in grade school, it's beaten into you. You know, trees are good. Planting trees is like the first thing we're exposed to uh, in terms of environmental acti- activism. And trees uh, breathe in CO2, they breathe out oxygen, we need them to live, so oh, let's plant trees. And, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with planting trees. It's a great activity, great action that we can do for the planet. But what people don't appreciate is deforestation, the act of deforestation, and typically it's through burning forests or converting them for agriculture, is a massive source of emissions, mm-hmm. right? So, um, uh, you know, if you look at all the deforestation in the world, it's it would be the third or fourth largest emitter if it mm-hmm. was all a country, right? Um, and so, so there's no way to have a... Uh, that we can have a serious global climate strategy without ma- massively and rapidly reducing deforestation. Before we even think about replanting, you know, it's sort of the, it's the, it's the, uh, the analogy is the uh, the, the flooding, flooded sink in your bathroom. The first thing you need to do is turn off the tap and then you can start cleaning up, right? turn off the tap is stopping deforestation and then we could start uh, planting, planting trees. So nothing wrong with you going to plant, plant trees. We, we should be able to walk and chew gum, we should do both. We should plant trees and stop deforestation. But in terms of the real priority, in terms of moving capital in a big way to chain, uh, you know, have a massive impact on on climate quickly, we got to reverse deforestation, stop, and then reverse deforestation. Yeah.
0: You made me feel good enough that I'll, I'll go there next year again and, and plant some more spruce trees. Uh, Aaron Bluegarden of Climate Finance Partners, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks to you guys for watching
1: at home. Thanks so much, and good luck with the... Uh, <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Brian Christopher, I'm the
2: editor of Follow the Money at South Bank Research. Today's topic for our wish list segment is one that I believe you need to pay attention to. I've written about this in my Follow the Money service, and I've alluded to it in these videos as well. Here's the setup. The U.S. dollar is inversely correlated to commodity prices they tend to move opposite each other. This is a chart of the US dollar index versus the Bloomberg Commodity Index. This Bloomberg index is made up of 23 commodities, from energy to precious metals to agriculture. Today, the largest weightings in this index are oil, natural gas, gold, corn, and soybeans, followed by copper and silver. It's important to note, that the dollar has a correlation of negative 0.95 versus this commodities index during the 10 years starting January 2010. A perfect negative correlation is negative one. So dollars and commodities tend to move opposite each other. The relationship isn't perfect and it can vary over certain time periods, but in general, this is a solid thesis. But the dollar has been strong This is a 10-year weekly chart. The dollar's been rising against its peers since May 2021. It's been a dramatic, persistent rise from 90.01 to more than 113 today. This kind of rise has happened before. You can see the move that started in mid-2014, but it's not common. When the dollar rose in 2014, commodities fell. Today, the world is worried about our global economic situation. When the world worries about things, it buys dollars. Dollars are considered to be the best of a bad lot of global currencies. Commodities initially rose with the COVID stimulus, but they've been feeling the wrath of the strong dollar, especially since June 2022. Central banks are trying to return to something like normalcy. They're raising rates because they believe that's what they need to do to fight the potential inflation that they caused with their previous missteps. We don't know how long they plan to keep rising or raising. And some are worried. Some believe the Fed, for example, is going too far. Let's be clear. It was stupid to leave rates so low for so long. But now, the U.S. Fed is raising rates at a pace we haven't seen before. You hear people talk about whether we'll have a hard or a soft landing. A hard landing is when the hikes cause a big slowdown after a period of solid growth. A soft landing is more desirable. It's when you curb inflation with rate hikes, and at the same time maintain jobs and minimize economic pain. At the pace the Fed is going, we will have a hard landing. An undesirably hard landing, in my opinion. Interestingly, that's one of the risks to our thesis. More on that to follow. When the dollar peaks and begins to fall, commodity prices should rise, as they have in the past. That should happen when the Fed, and likely other central banks, give us a blueprint for future moves that include pausing hikes at some point in the future. That will lead the market to buy things that benefit from a rate pause. This includes commodities and stocks. But commodities have fared worse than stocks. This chart compares the commodity-focused S&P GSCI Total Return Index With the S&P 500 total return index, commodities in the numerator, and stocks in the the denominator. As you can see, stocks have grown more than commodities over this period, but commodities are trying to stage a comeback little by little. The ratio bottomed on 27 April 2020, just after the world began stimulating itself to fight COVID. Since then, it has doubled. This trend does not guarantee commodities will continue to outperform stocks, but trends are our friend. As you know, many are not fans of commodities like fossil fuels, including those in high places. Therefore, less has been invested in exploring for them. Strangely, the same can be said for some of the metals used to decarbonize decarbonization will require a huge amount of metals like copper for transmission lines, to install new wire and renewable power sources, and to electrify stuff. You've heard for years now that this transition is happening, but the mining industry isn't investing enough, in my opinion, to find this copper, to find more copper. At the peak in 2012, copper miners spent $1.41 billion dollars on exploration. More recently, Ex- expenditures were up from 2020 to 2021 but S&P Global shows they're still more than 40 percent below that 2012 level. It's harder to find copper in the ground than to expand existing mines so that's what the industry has been doing but that's not sustainable. We need, we need new supply sources too and governments don't really help. It takes seven to ten years on average to obtain the permits to operate a mine in the U.S. It can take 20 years to find, permit, fund, and build a mine. And even after you build a mine, you often have pauses in production because your neighbors may conduct strikes to tell you that they don't like you in the neighborhood. And some universities are turning their backs on commodities too. Birkbeck, University of London, says its career service, and I quote, will not hold relationships of any kind with oil, gas, or mining companies." You can't make this stuff up, you guys. Oil, gas, and mining? Five minerals are used in many EV batteries today. Lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, and graphite. All of these are mined. Remember, without supply, the price will rise that's economics 101. In addition, energy expert and the chairman of S&P Global, Daniel Jurgen, says our energy transition goals will be pushed out further into the future. How do you meet quotas, government imposed quotas without raw materials? Again, as it pertains to our thesis, a lack of supply would jack up copper prices. So let's talk risks. A factor that would slow the increase in the prices of copper and other commodities is the Fed. If the Fed and other central banks rate hikes push us into recession, we'll have to deal with that first. The kicker is investments in exploration and mining are unlikely to grow during an economic slowdown, and they could well atrophy more. But think about it. Energy costs are down from their highs, but are still elevated. People are fearful of the economic landscape, and we've already seen some commodity prices fall. Copper is down 30% from its one-year high in March. It's approaching 2018 levels again. So a recession, while a slowdown, doesn't remove the bullish factors we're facing. I should add, however, that uh, big up days in the stock market, like we saw on the 3rd and 4th of October, are actually a risk they contribute to the likelihood that the Fed will continue with its rate hikes. Another risk is peace. Yes, peace could also slow the commodity price hikes. If the issues in the Ukraine are resolved and we all share global resources again, that would cut the prices of several commodities. And I wish I could tell you that was near, but we're not seeing very many signs of it. And if China stays in its slowdown for longer, that would be bad for prices too. Remember though, our thesis is a weakening in the US dollar will be good for commodity prices, as it has been in the past. That's the wish, if you will, of this wish list video. These risks I highlighted could slow the pace of increase or cause prices to pull back a bit more, but we still expect commodity prices and therefore commodity stocks to benefit We're watching the US dollar index. You can too. As you can see, it's began pullbacks before without success. It even had one recently during the week ending for October. Then it reverted higher. Central banks are pushing us toward a hard landing. They're doing so because they caused this mess in the first place and they think this might fix
1: it. We'll see how much they want it. Thank you for watching this video.